This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Donald Trump, the Trump voters, and wars without end. Andrew Basevich will comment. And we'll take a look at the politics of the World Cup with sports historian Bob Edelman. He's just returned from the opening games in Moscow. First up, climate change and national security. For that, we turn to Bill McKibben. He was one of the first to warn of the dangers of global warming, and he's written about it widely for The New Yorker, The New York Review, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, and also in many books, including The End of Nature and Oil and Honey. He's the founder of the environmental organization 350.org, and he's also a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College and lives in Vermont. We reached him today in the Adirondacks. Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, what a pleasure, John. Well, you write in the new issue of The Nation that climate change is not an environmental issue. What kind of issue is it? Well, I mean, really what climate change is is a lens to which to look at the world. Uh, It's the most important thing that's going on on the planet. Not that there aren't a million more important, more dramatic things going on every day, but the most important thing that's happening silently for the most part every day is the, the rapid transformation of the earth around us. So in the same way that, say, economic growth was the lens through which we looked at most of the 20th century and the questions that we asked were usually answered by will this make the economy bigger or not in in, in this era the single most important question we can be asking is will whatever we're doing uh, uh, help or hinder the efforts to keep the planet from as it were burning up and blowing away Well, The Nation has just published a special issue on national security, and you're one of the contributors. The Pentagon, of course, is one of the government institutions responsible for our security. How have they been doing with climate change? (laughs) Well, I I mean, one grades on a curve here. Uh, Compared with the rest of Washington, um, the Pentagon has at least been somewhat reality-based in its dealings with climate change for 20 years now there's been a fairly robust understanding inside the pentagon that this is a big problem that draws draws from two sources one the pentagon owns an ungodly amount of real estate as you know spread out all across the planet far too much from my point of view 
but uh, an awful lot of that real estate is threatened directly by uh, climate change. The Navy has hundreds of installations uh, at threat from sea level rise, including some of its most important and, and biggest. That's part of the answer. The other part is that, you know, as people sit down and worry about what kind of threats the planet faces, sort of traditional security terms in the next few decades, it's hard to escape the conclusion that climate change will drive them probably more than any other factor. Uh, the thing that the Pentagon worries about, I think, above all else is instability, knowing that it leads to conflict. And in this case, the instability is profound. And what it leads to, above all, is the mobilization of people, uh, people fleeing rising seas, people fleeing baking droughts that lead to famine. The great example, of course, is what happened in Syria, where we had the greatest drought in the history of what we once called the Fertile Crescent in the early or in the sort of mid-aughts of this, this century. And that helped set in motion the crisis that spun refugees across the planet and in the process destabilized political systems, our own included, in ways that continue up to this day. I mean, it was, uh, you know, sometime in this last week that Donald Trump was tweeting taunts at Angela Merkel about uh, uh, Germany becoming a migrant crime haven or something. Multiply this by 100, and you get a sense of what's likely to happen as the weather deteriorates in the, in the decades ahead. And it's not as if this is some, in any sense, abstract notion. I mean, in the last week, studies emerged demonstrating that the rate of melting in the Antarctic has tripled uh, since 2012. That's precisely the kind of trend that a lot of us had worried about for a long time, and it demonstrates just how fast this crisis is deepening. You say that success for the climate change movement will not mean stopping global warming. That sounds ominous. How do you define success for the climate movement? Well, at this point, I fear it's too late for stopping global warming to be on the list of menu options. And that's a hard thing, of course, for those of us who've been working on this a very long time to say. I mean, we should note in passing that it was 30 years ago, almost to the day, June 23, 1988, when Jim Hansen, NASA scientist, stood up in Congress and announced that climate change was underway, really sounding the starter's pistol for what should have been the all-out race to do something about the greatest problem we've ever come up against. Uh, obviously, we haven't taken it on with the urgency it demanded, and so at this point, we're playing not for stopping global warming, but for limiting it to the point where civilizations as we know them can deal with it. And again, there's no guarantee that that remains possible. Uh, the damage that we've allowed so far is tremendous. There was a study in the last couple of days, predicting that in the United States alone, chronic flooding by the later part of the century as sea levels rise will inundate an area of infrastructure larger than the number of buildings and houses in Houston and Los Angeles combined. Wow. Um, and of course, the U.S. Is, will, you know, will, will fare better than an awful lot of other countries around the world as the oceans rise. That's what we're playing for now, trying to limit things 
to the point where uh, the people who come after us can can have some hope of dealing with them. And that'll take enormous nimbleness from here on in. So we need action on, on many fronts. What's number one on your list? You want number one, two, and three, maybe? Yeah. Uh, here's the action plan at the moment. One, rapid, rapid conversion to 100% renewable energy, something that's now possible because the engineers have done their job so well and dropped the price of renewable energy so far. Last week, Nevada set the new U.S. record with a big new solar plant coming in at about two cents a kilowatt hour, a a truly unheard of price for electricity. Second thing is we have to keep in the ground fossil fuels wherever they are. There's a big, big decision coming up this week from the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission, of all people, about whether or not to allow one of these big tar sands out of the pipelines of Canada, the so-called Line 3. And that's, you know, one more fight in this ongoing fight. And the third thing is, and this is something that everybody can work on, whether they live near a coal mine or a pipeline or not, we have to break the power of the fossil fuel industry by cutting the flow of money their direction. That's why the good news about this widespread divestment campaign is one of the things that that gives me hope. We're closing in now on $7 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have decided to divest in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And that's taking its toll. You know, the fossil fuel industry is now dramatically underperforming the rest of the economy. And it has enormous political clout, but it's on borrowed time. Our job is to make that time as short as absolutely possible. You listed keeping fossil fuels in the ground as uh, one of the top three. Maybe we should say a word about fracking at this point. Yeah, well, fracking is one of the things that, uh, one of the ways of getting more fossil fuel out of the ground that has spread widely around the world, beginning in the States uh, over the last two decades. And, of course, it's an enormous problem. The methane that's leaking out of these fracking wells and things is, is adding to the burden that carbon puts in the, in the atmosphere. That's why it's so important. That's why so many people, for instance, are demanding that, that leaders like Jerry Brown, the governor of California, who've done great work on the demand side of the climate equation, also take up the supply side and stop uh, granting new permits for oil wells in California. Uh, the world will be converging on California in September for uh, the Global Climate Action Summit that Brown has called. And the gesture we need from him in part of that is to make it clear that California is ready to begin the kind of phase-out of the fossil fuel production industry. That would be a huge step. There's a problem with the news about climate change every day as you say, it's the biggest news on the planet, but it's hardly ever in the headlines. Why, why is that? <laughs> well, because no day is it the single most dramatic thing. I mean, how could it be in the headline, really, uh, you know, given all else that's going on this week? I just, I, I, I spent a little while going through uh, all the op-ed pieces in the New York Times for the first, uh, through the beginning of June this year, so about 660 or so pieces, and of those Six had dealt more, you know, in part or in whole with climate change. Uh, And and one of those was simply to uh, ball out me and Naomi Klein for uh, not understanding that that somehow it would all be taken care of because of, uh, I don't know, the wonderful free hand, the invisible hand or something. One percent of, you know, the attention of the world's 
intellectual space on climate change is clearly not enough. But I have no idea, you know, what I would have done differently if I was running the op-ed page of the Times. I mean, what are you going to do? Not cover the Me Too moment? Not cover people, people's children being taken away from them by the federal government? You know, we live in a moment of enormous drama, and climate change is moves at slightly too slow a scale. And, you know, it's moving at an enormously fast scale in kind of geological terms, uh, at slightly too slow a scale for the news cycle for the most part. But that's why it's you know important that we keep talking about it whenever we can. And the good news is that it's making a dent. There was a poll last week showing that among progressives in this country, it's now the third most important voting issue. That should be a reminder to our political leaders on the left anyway that the time has come to really talk about it all the time, to make it along with inequality, along with uh, racism and gender inequality, the kind of fourth crucial issue that progressives talk about constantly. And who among our political leaders is doing the best to give climate change the attention it deserves? Well, I got to say, Bernie did a great job, uh, has been doing a great job all along, even though it's clearly not his thing that, you know, moves his heart the most. Um, That would be economic inequality, as everyone knows. But during the first, you know, set of presidential debates, when they said, what's the biggest problem facing the world? Without skipping a beat and without appearing to think about it at all, he said, well, obviously climate change, which Mm. obviously Mm. is true. And that was a very that was a kind of important moment. I think uh, uh, there hasn't been one quite like it before in in U.S. political history. Uh, so now the job is to bring a lot of other people to the same place where they're making it a a priority issue because it has to be a priority issue if we're going to do the things that need to be done to get it tackled. And and I hope that just as the rest of the Democratic Party has started to follow him on things like health care for all and a $15 minimum wage, uh, they'll be following him on keep it in the ground and 100% renewable. Last question. Trump has done many terrible things on climate. What do you think is the worst thing he's done? Well, you're right. The list is extraordinarily long. I think the thing that, that history will judge him most harshly for in climate, and in some ways maybe the most far-reaching of all his efforts so far, was to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. Not because those were such great accords. Uh, They're, at the best, a beginning of dealing with this problem. But the fact that the country on the planet that has produced the most carbon altered the atmosphere and hence the temperature most dramatically is also the only country, literally the only country out of 190-some nations on Earth that refuses to join in the international effort to do anything about it. That is a, um, well, that should should shame us all. There's a lot of things that should shame us all, um, um, but that's high on the list. Bill McKibben, he wrote about catastrophic climate change for the special issue of The Nation on national security. Read it at thenation.com. Bill, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking well, with us today. Back at you, John, and it's always a great pleasure to get to talk and to get to listen to your great work. Okay, thank you very much.
Now it's time to talk about Donald Trump and wars without end. In April, President Trump said the global war on terror had cost $7 trillion over 17 years. And he said that in exchange for that $7 trillion, quote, we have nothing, nothing except death and destruction. It's a horrible thing, close quote. For comment, we turn to Andrew Basevich. He graduated from West Point. He got a Ph.D. at Princeton. He served in the Army for 23 years, then became a professor at Boston University. Now he's the author, co-author, or editor of a dozen books, three of the recent books, Breach of Trust, Washington Rules, and the Limits of Power, all hit the New York Times bestseller list. His most recent book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, was longlisted for the National Book Award. He publishes often in the L.A. Times, the New York Times, Tom Dispatch, and The Nation. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. Well, what do you think about Trump's statement that we have nothing to show for 17 years of war except death and destruction? Well, more true than not. Uh, I mean, I I think that uh, people may argue about whether or not we've spent $7 trillion dollars we certainly spent a couple trillion, and, we're, and, and before the last bill gets paid, we will have spent more. Uh, but whatever the number is, it's a big, big number. Uh, and if we consider what we thought we were doing uh, when we launched the global war on terror after 9/11, it doesn't seem that we've got all that much in return for that investment. You call these wars mindless. It's hard to disagree with that, but. How come we keep going? Why don't, why don't we stop or at least consider the possibility that we might stop? Well, the, the American people have disengaged from the wars. Uh, there, there was a time when large numbers of our fellow citizens were paying attention, uh, but that was back when U.S. casualties in Iraq were substantial. So we're talking, you know, 2005, 6, uh, 7. But one of the things that's happened since then, and, and one might give President Obama the greatest amount of credit here, I use credit ironically, uh, is that we've adjusted the way we are prosecuting this war on terror in ways that find far fewer Americans dying today than was the case, let's say, a decade ago. So the wars continue, whether we're talking about uh, Afghanistan or Syria or various parts of Africa, uh, but the American people don't notice. And so there's very little little political pressure uh, to examine whether or not we're making any headway. And what about paying the bills for these wars, whether it's 2 or $3 billion or $7 billion, That's still a lot of money for the taxpayers. Well, there too, I think Bush and Obama and Trump uh, have rather skillfully, I would also say cynically, passed off the bill onto some future generation. Maybe, maybe our grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to have to pony up the money to pay for our current wars, uh, but it's not going to be you and me. It's not even going to be the, uh, my, my children. So there, too, that provides an excuse for Americans simply to not pay attention. Uh, and we're not. In, 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 in an odd way, the, the great circus of the Trump administration provides yet another reason to not pay attention to the wars. The media obsession uh, with Trump's latest tweet or bizarre uh, statement, uh, I, I think, 
in a sense, those are understandable, uh, but they also serve then to distract attention from more substantive matters. And on the other hand, our, many of our congressmen also seem enthusiastic about private contractors and uh, mercenaries uh, doing the job. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a heck of a lot of money uh, moving, uh, you know, from appropriations to, uh, to the Pentagon to defense contractors, kind of coming back around the bend in the form of campaign contributions. There is a gravy train uh, that has been rolling along now for quite some time, and that, too, I think, is yet another factor that contributes to the lack of any political interest in asking serious questions. So this whole system that we have today, as you say, began in nine, after 9-11 with George W. Bush, continued and expanded by Barack Obama. But now we have a president who has broken with all of his predecessors who said loudly and clearly that our post-9-11 wars cost too much and are not working. And he said that during the campaign. He got elected saying that. Let's talk about that election for a minute, because among other things, clearly Hillary was the leader of the status quo when it came to fighting these wars. Well, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I still find it uh, more than a little bit uh, puzzling. I subscribe to the notion that Trump's election has less to do with the substance of Trump's promises, less to do with that than with the fact that he portrayed himself as the enemy of the establishment, that he was going to drain the hated swamp. Yeah. And, and I think, by extension, one of the things that would occur would be that these wars would, would come to an end, that he would end them. And now here we find ourselves, a year and a half into his presidency, and it, that certainly hasn't happened. I mean, the record is quite confusing in a way. Uh, he's you know, pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and would seem to his administration, at least, would seem to uh, not be averse to a showdown with Iran. You know, us and the Israelis and the Saudis. I find that bizarre, but that seems to be one theme of his foreign policy. Uh, he continued and indeed escalated uh, U.S. involvement in the war against ISIS and in the Afghanistan war. That's certainly not what he led his, vo- his supporters to expect. But of course, and then we have the example of of Korea, where following the uh, the you know extraordinary fire and fury uh, rhetoric, he's now has set him up, set himself up to be the peacemaker. Now, whether or not that's going to pan out, I think remains to be seen. But it's very difficult to look at the many the, the, the several things that he's done. At least difficult for me, and and see a coherent theme or strategy. So switching here from Trump to Trump supporters, a lot of our friends consider Trump supporters to be crypto fascists or racist bigots. Uh, In the new issue of The Nation, you talk about a a different way of thinking about them. Well, my sort of uh, temperament finds me somewhat sympathetic to these people who are in some way on the right some way a conservative. I'm impressed by the fact that uh, even though Secretary Clinton won the popular vote, nonetheless, was it 63 point something million voted for Trump himself. So there's a lot of our fellow citizens out there who were so angry 
when they went to the polls in November 2016, that they cast their vote for someone who is manifestly unqualified for the office, I think as a way of basically, you know, giving the finger to to the political establishment. And And although there are some who I think tend to dismiss the concerns of the alienated 63 million, uh, I think we should take those concerns seriously, not to, not to turn the government uh, over to whatever these folks represent. But if the aim is, and I think the aim ought to be, to find some way of bringing the country back together again, of, of at least to some degree healing the divisions uh, that are so manifest at the present moment, then we have to try to take seriously the concerns of the people who put Trump in office in the first place. Again, it's not to surrender to their views, but to try to understand the sources of their anger. So what do you think it will take to convince millions of people that the national security of the United States may not require U.S. troops in more than 170 countries or, <laughs> or that we may not need to spend $700 billion a year? Uh, what will it take? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to claim anything for myself, but at the beginning of this interview, you, you very generously noted some of, the, some of the books I've written. And, and in a way, I've been trying, I'm not the only one, nor, do, nor would I suggest I'm, I'm the most prominent one, but I am among those who've been trying to make this argument that our approach to national security is quite fundamentally uh, flawed. And, and those of us who are making that argument aren't making much progress, as far as I can tell. So what would it take? I don't know. I mean, I hate to say it, will it take some kind of a enormous catastrophe uh, to, to serve as an awakening? In some senses, I thought that the combination of the debacle of the Iraq war compounded by the Great Recession. I thought that those two together uh, might provide that moment of awakening. It did not. So I don't, I don't know what's needed. Uh, I do know that simply continuing down the path that we were on prior to Trump being elected wasn't going wasn't gonna to get us anywhere. Andrew Basevich, he wrote about wars without end for the nation's special issue on foreign policy. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Andy. Thanks a lot. Next up, the politics of the World Cup, the world's biggest sports event underway now in Russia. For that, we turn to Bob Edelman. He teaches the history of sport and Russian history at the University of California, San Diego. He's a former sports writer and radio announcer. He's consulted on documentaries for HBO, PBS, ESPN, and CBS at the 1998 Winter Olympic Games. His most recent book is The Oxford Handbook of Sports History, an edited volume with 34 chapters that's almost 600 pages long. And he's currently leading a multi-year international research project on the global history of sport during the Cold War. He's just returned from Moscow. Bob Edelman, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Well, first of all, why is the World Cup in Russia? How did they get it at the moment when Russia is banned from the Olympics? Well, the process by which what are called mega events of the Olympics and the World Cup is that the, um, the the games are or the whatever the event is awarded 
seven years ahead of time. So they, they're seen as like aircraft carriers. So what happens at the inception doesn't mean the situation you're going to get when the actual games are taking place. So I'll give you an example. In 1931, Berlin is awarded the Olympic Games. So this is two years before Hitler comes to power. So by the time they get to 1936, things have changed and yes. for the worst. And there was a huge debate about whether you know there should be a boycott or not. So this process is kind of built into the, the very structure of the process. So we think of Putin as an authoritarian supported by oligarchs. How successful has he been in the last couple of weeks using the World Cup to expand his own power and standing? I think it's kind of an open question. I mean, it doesn't feel like a fascist state when you're actually walking the streets there. And I tried not to watch a ton of TV because that may be a place where that kind of power is expressed. But, you know, I think this is a general situation that, that, that goes back to what they were doing in 2014 with the Winter Games. It's a part of a general soft power campaign. Uh, it's cost them a lot of money. I think this will probably be less successful on the field of play than the Olympics were, but, you know, it's possible that the players themselves will be cleaner. I can't guarantee that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of an open question. And uh, a lot of these things, more the World Cup than the Olympic Games, tend to have a, a built-in situation of unpredictability. So somebody once said, a friend of mine once wrote that uh, soccer football is a slippery tool in the hands of dictators. Mm. So it's not clear how this is going to all play out. And what was it like for you to be in Moscow when the Russians won their first match 5 to nothing over Saudi Arabia? Well, I'll tell you, so... First thing that happens is I, I get into a talking with my taxi driver about two or three days before the game, and I'm convinced that this is going to be nil-nil, right? Because opening games are always kind of unimaginative and people are nervous. So I said to the taxi driver, I think it's going to be nil-nil. The taxi driver says to me, oh, no, it's going to be 5 nothing Russia. <laughs> and I thought this guy was an idiot. <laughs> what did he know that you didn't? Uh, I'm trying to find him. I'm trying to track him down and, and determine what that might be, you know, but it it does suggest uh, that perhaps there was something that was preordained. I have no proof of this. Well, you know, when we, we think of Russia in sports, the first thing we think of is hockey. Then maybe we think of gymnastics at the Olympics. How big is soccer in Russia these days? How big was it in the Soviet Union? Soccer was always the most popular sport in, Ru in the Russian Empire just before the revolution, throughout all of Soviet history. The fact that it was the most popular sport didn't mean that it kind of worked in the way that the state would like it to work, meaning that it was something that could have potentially inculcated obedience. You know, this was supposedly a planned economy and uh, a relatively controlled society. I think we now have learned that that was not really the case. And so if you look at Soviet football in particular, it's not something that the state really succeeded in controlling pretty well. There was corruption. There were all kinds of unpredictable results. There were riots. Uh, you know, players could behave badly. Uh, they were not always role models. So... It's a hugely popular sport. It's always been, but it's also 
its lack of success in the international level, especially, is more emblematic of the lack of success of the Soviet Union in general as a kind of a modernization project, if you want to call it that. Moving out from Russia to Europe, I wonder what you think of the argument made recently by Gary Young, the nation columnist and Guardian writer, who worried that the World Cup would mobilize Europe's resurgent right-wing populist nationalism, or or at least provide an arena for expressing it? Well, you know, especially in an age of globalization, it's possible that national soccer teams are the last vestige of the nation state. At least that's what we thought maybe five years ago. And uh, it will all depend to a certain extent upon results. But some of the worst uh, places actually for of the expression of this kind of right-wing populism, let's say Turkey, let's say Hungary, like even Russia, are not at the moment really uh, considered to be possible successes uh, in the World Cup. So I think it's, again, that old slippery tool. And uh, I don't think it's going to... I mean, I think the piece that Gary wrote uh, was excellent, and it's certainly a smart thing to raise, but I do think it's as uh, Stuart Hall would have said, contested terrain. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Gary Young also points out the ways that national soccer teams are one of the few places where, especially for uh, the European teams, minorities are likely to be overrepresented. And so issues of racial and national identity often feature heavily in talk about the sport, especially in Europe, when a team wins its diversity is taken as a sign of the nation's genius in uh, allowing and nurturing diversity. When a team loses, diversity can be seen as a reason for its failure. I wonder if you think that that's true. Well, it played out perfectly in 1998 when this very diverse team of France won, uh, much to the shock and surprise of the French. Uh, and uh, that diversity was embraced and we all look back to that as a wonderful moment in history. Four years later, they stank up the joint. And, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, Le Pen, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen was, uh, you know, claiming that this was the result of too many black players. So both of these scenarios can play out, and obviously based upon uh, results. I think it's also, uh, you know, indicative of the fact that citizenship in modern, you know, whatever post Cold War Europe became extremely malleable. So, I mean, for instance, apparently if your grandmother drank uh, a glass of Jameson, you could represent Ireland. <laughs> uh, it's almost that. It's like, I mean, you know, and you see that sort of strangeness. Uh, I don't think it's the case this year, but there have been times when people from Africa have represented Poland. Well, uh, on the diversity front, Mexico beat Germany. How big was that? Immense. And what was surprising to me completely uh, was that the arena, the stadium, was almost overwhelmingly Mexican. And uh, first of all, there's a living, breathing, highly successful Mexican, you know, middle class and upper class that are the kind of people that can attend these matches. So you know, the idea that there's a sort of third world country which can't really participate fully in the World Cup has already been you know, revealed as a myth just by the fact that this many Mexicans showed up. And again, uh, if you want to talk about unpredictability, this is a perfect case. A lot of people love Iceland this year. Why is that? 
What do you think, John? Well, they're <laughs> they're the littlest country. What's the total population of Iceland? Three hundred thousand or something like that. And yet they're in the yep. World Cup, and their players do not get sixty million dollars for uh, professional teams. The coach is a dentist or something. Uh, have I got Have I got this right? Well, I wouldn't say that the players are not quite good. I mean, there's a lot of them that are dotted over the best leagues of, of Europe, especially even you know the Premier League in England. So they have made a commitment to find as many young people, young men in this case, uh, and then train them from an early age. And then, you know, using their sort of first world cyber digital talents, you know, mobilize a very high level of sports science in support of this. No one has suggested drugs at any point, you know, because we like Iceland too much and it's a perfect story. Uh, so I'm not even going to go there, but it is a perfect case of using rational methods to bring to the fore something that, you know, if you do are able to control it, and you know, obviously most of these players are middle class, let's say, so there's that that kind of issue that uh, you know they're able to you know, be taught and uh, express this. But it's a, you know it's a great story, and especially you know if you're all uh, sort of remember the, how they put England to the sword in uh, the European Championship two years ago. The story is not new. And there's this wonderful moment, I don't know if you've ever seen it, where they're making this full-length counterattack against England. And the Icelandic announcer, you don't need to know any word of Icelandic, right? But he starts sort of getting a little excited, and then he, you know, it gets higher and higher, and the pitch of his voice gets higher and higher. And finally, they score this goal, and the the poor guy just explodes. <laughs> the World Cup is the biggest media event uh, in the universe. The TV audience is much bigger than the Super Bowl or the Olympics. Uh, let's talk a little more about what you called mega events. Well, a mega event is something that goes on for a while, either two weeks in the case of the Olympics, roughly, and a month in the case of uh, the World Cup. It's one that uh, uses media to uh, disseminate the event throughout the world. What's also interesting more in the World Cup than in the Olympics is that uh, everybody kind of knows what's going to happen in terms of the rules in terms of you know what particular game is played in the Olympic Games, there are all these events that you know on a normal day people don't care about. I mean, one of the things I've always uh, enjoyed about the World Cup is that they don't really have much of an opening ceremony, and that that's because they don't need this elaborate you know event to convince people that they should watch for the next two weeks. You know, they just they don't want an ceremony; they just want to get on and watch the play. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing which has to be mentioned uh, and uh, is that this is a largely male event, although the Women's World Cup is really growing in stature and obviously was very big in the United States just this most recent time. You know, it's it's a festival of masculinity, even though it sees a lot more women in the stands at a World Cup than you would, uh, I don't know if it's true in an Olympics, but there been an average, say, league game on a Saturday and, you know, some... European or Latin American country. 
Our uh, producer, Alan Minsky, is involved with a project called The People's Game about uh, the World Cup. They're calling for a, a global strike or at least a, a global work uh, stoppage of vacation to coincide with the World Cup. I, I wonder if you support that. Well, unfortunately, I am supporting it by spending time away from my work, <laughs> <laughs> which, as you know, as the zero is writing and uh, and watching much too much TV. I mean, I actually did watch Sweden uh, play against South Korea yesterday, and uh, you know, I, I I may have to ex- extend or extend my therapy in order to figure it all out. <laughs> Bob Edelman, our sports historian, just back from the World Cup games in Moscow. Thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure, Jim. For more on the politics of the World Cup and the games themselves, check out this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks with the author of the book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, Jules Boykoff. He's a former U.S. Olympic soccer player. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.